The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Over the last few years, it has become abundantly clear that this world needs faithful leaders who are courageous, proven, trustworthy, filled with truth, and eager to sacrifice for the good of others. Those kinds of leaders in this world are rare. It's also become abundantly clear that nowhere is the need for such leaders greater than within the church across the world. The church needs faithful spiritual leaders who will courageously stand for God's truth and declare the Word of God without compromise. This isn't a day to be tolerant of unfaithful spiritual leaders in the church. Too much is at stake. Those who have shown themselves unfaithful must be rejected. But now is the time when the church must follow those who have proven themselves to be faithful and unwavering. And so a passage like the one we're studying in 1 Thessalonians 2 is critically important because it tells us how to identify faithful spiritual leaders. Now, of course, no leader, no spiritual leader is perfect except Christ. He's the head of the church and He's the one that we ultimately follow. He's our leader. He's our great shepherd. He's our Lord and Savior. And all spiritual leaders, even faithful ones, are still sinful and not yet what they one day will be. But it's important that we understand what marks faithful spiritual leaders even as they are imperfect and still maturing in character. And so let's again turn to our study of 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-12. through As we seek to learn the distinguishing characteristics of Faithful spiritual leaders. We'll read the whole passage, but our focus will be on verses 5 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. 
For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Last week, we learned that Paul wrote this passage in order to defend the integrity of his ministry among the Thessalonians. That was a church that Paul planted along with Silvanus and Timothy. But he was no longer there, and since he was no longer there, his enemies had an opportunity to exploit his absence by disparaging his ministry and calling into doubt his integrity. And so he wrote in this passage to defend himself either against an attack that had already had come or one that he anticipated would one day come. As Paul defends his ministry in these verses, he demonstrates characteristics that are true of all spiritual leaders, faithful spiritual leaders. Last week we learned two of these characteristics in verses 1-4. through First, we learn that faithful spiritual leaders are distinguished by courage. Paul, along with Silvanus and Timothy, came to Thessalonica under a cloud of opposition. They came to preach the gospel while under attack and facing severe opposition, not only from where they had come, but when they arrived there in Thessalonica. Yet despite this, they preached with boldness. They preached freely and without constraint. And they were willing to suffer for the gospel, even if it cost them much, even if it cost them their lives. They were courageous and thereby proved their faithfulness. Second, we learn that faithful spiritual leaders are distinguished by provenness, and we found that in verses 3 and 4. These three had been commissioned by God to bring the gospel to Thessalonica. They didn't self-appoint themselves. They were appointed by God. They were tested by God before they were given positions of leadership. Before they ever had prominence, they were tested and proven by God. In their service, they had demonstrated that their message was not false, their motivations were not impure, and their methods were not deceptive. And so their provenness demonstrated their faithfulness. Now as we continue in verses 5-8, through we discover a third and a fourth characteristic of faithful spiritual leaders. The third distinguishing characteristic of faithful spiritual leaders is sincerity. Faithful spiritual leaders are distinguished by sincerity. According to verses 5 and 6, the sincerity of Paul's ministry was demonstrated in three ways. Three ways there. Sincerity was demonstrated. For one, Paul and his co-workers demonstrated the sincerity of their ministry through the sincerity of their speech. The sincerity of their speech. He writes in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. When they preached the Gospel in Thessalonica and taught the new believers God's truth, their words were not tainted by flattery. What does he mean by flattery? Well, flattery is to praise someone insincerely for selfish gain. It's false praise for the sake of gaining influence or getting some sort of advantage. 
It isn't wrong to praise someone so long as it's sincere and not excessive. Paul praised the Thessalonians in chapter 1 as he gave thanks to God for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. But he never flattered the church with false praise. He never gave them disingenuous compliments. In contrast, flattery was common in those days among traveling philosophers who journeyed from city to city. We talked about that a little bit last time. They would gather a crowd in the marketplaces and the street corners. And they would flatter their hearers in order to gain followers and money. But flattery is sinful speech because it's false speech. In Psalm chapter 12, verse 2, David cries out to God because everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Their lies and flattering lips are equated. They're one and the same. David understood that flattery is a form of lying. It's deception. And so he prayed again in Psalm chapter 12, verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Flattery might seem harmless. It might seem like it is inconsequential. But Scripture teaches that it's hate speech and brings destruction. Proverbs 26, verse 28 says, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Lie comes from, lies come from an inner hatred. And to tell a lie is to hate the person you're telling it to. Because it's not the truth. And love goes with the truth. A flattering mouth works ruin. Flattery works ruin because it's calculated for selfish gain and deceives the one who takes that flattery into their heart. It's no wonder that false teachers in the church are often marked by flattery. Paul warned of this in Romans chapter 16. He said in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Don't get around them. Don't engage them. Avoid them. Reject them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. False teachers use false praise to ensnare naive people who love to be praised. If you love to be praised, you are vulnerable to flattery. And sooner or later, you'll be led astray by someone who discovers that they can manipulate you with flattering words. Now, whether the Thessalonians were vulnerable to flattery or not, I don't know, but they knew that Paul didn't preach to them words of flattery. Notice how he calls them as witnesses in verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know. You know this. They could reflect on their experience with Paul 
and his companions and affirm that the missionaries didn't come to win them with flattery. When Paul preached, he told the truth not only about God, but about his hearers. He didn't try to woo them with false praise. He didn't try to manipulate them by stroking their egos. He didn't ingratiate Himself to them with soft preaching that appealed to their sinful desires. There are preachers today who minimize the sinfulness of sin in order to win the favor of crowds. They don't condemn sin in their churches because it would lead to an exodus in the aisles. But Paul never stooped so low. He preached hard truths to them. Hard preaching produces soft hearts. Soft preaching produces hard hearts. Paul preached hard truths. He called them to repentance. He called out their pride. He called out their impurity. He told them when they were wrong. He exhorted them with the truth. No doubt they didn't always hear from Him what they wanted to hear, but what they heard was what they needed to hear. He didn't shy away from telling them the truth. He always preached with sincerity of speech. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy also demonstrated the sincerity of their ministry through the sincerity of their motives. The sincerity of their motives. Again, in verse 5, we never came with a pretext for greed. God is witness. A pretext is a false motive. It's to pretend to have one motive, but to secretly have another. One of the marks of false teachers is, in fact, greed. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They'll teach falsely in order to get financial gain from you. In that same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, he says that these false teachers have hearts trained in greed. This isn't a momentary temptation that they give in to. They've given themselves over to greed so that they're trained in it. They're experienced in it. It characterizes their lives. And they use their greed and their false words to get from vulnerable people. And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.5 that false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They use the church as their marketplace. Just like those Jews of old who turned the temple into a marketplace and Jesus drove them out. Even today, there are people who use the church as their marketplace for financial gain. Greed must never characterize those who lead the church. Paul told Timothy in 1 
Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, that a man who leads the church must not be a lover of money. A lover of money. Cannot be. Likewise, he told Titus in Titus 1.7 that an elder in a church must not be greedy for gain. Peter said in 1 Peter 5.2 that elders must shepherd the flock not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not because there's a paycheck at the end of it. Greed is a disqualification for spiritual leadership. If Paul, Savannah, and Timothy were greedy, then they were unfit to lead the church and their teaching would be compromised. But they didn't come to Thessalonica with a hidden motive of greed. They didn't disguise their greed in the garb of godliness. They didn't try to win people over in order to get at their pocketbooks. In fact, they worked hard very hard to provide for themselves so that no one could accuse them of preaching for money. In chapter 2 here, the same chapter, verse 9, Paul writes, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He wrote something similar in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul would rather wear himself out in hard work than to give his enemies any reason Charge him with greed. The Thessalonians couldn't look into his heart and see his motives, but God could. And so in verse 5, he called on God as a witness of his true motives. We never came with a pretext for greed. God is witness, God knows the truth. God knows our motivations. God Himself could testify that greed wasn't the reason we came to you. And so the sincerity of their ministry was proved by the sincerity of their speech and the sincerity of their motives. And then thirdly, it was demonstrated by the sincerity of their ambition. Up in verse 4, Paul said, we speak not to please man, but to please God. And he continues that thought here in verse 6. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. The ambition of Paul and his companions was the glory of God, not personal glory. That is, the aim of their ministry wasn't to get honor, prestige, renown, recognition, or fame for themselves, but solely to give honor to God. Now again, in contrast, the traveling philosophers of those days loved to be praised by people. They lived for it. And many of them became famous and like celebrities. Celebrities of the ancient world who people flocked to and longed to sit under their so-called wise teaching. But Paul didn't seek glory from people. 
That wasn't his ambition. He didn't set out to make a name for himself or to create a worldwide ministry to promote his teaching. To do so would have disqualified himself from ministry. That's what he said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now seeking to seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I seeking to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Seeking glory for yourself is incompatible with serving Christ. You can't make yourself great and His name great at the same time. You can't work to build Christ's kingdom while laboring to build your own. That is, in effect, to have two masters Christ and yourself. And Jesus says you cannot do that. Selfish ambition and hunger for fame have no place in ministry. None. In the words of Proverbs 25-27, it is not glorious to seek your own glory. In fact, if you seek glory from people, that may indicate you're not saved at all. Jesus condemned the unbelieving Jews in John 5.44 with these words. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe when you're man-pleasers? When you're seeking glory for yourself? Leaders in the church who labor for their own glory rather than for the glory of God reveal the state of their soul by their ambitions as they seek to build their religious empires that feed their appetites for wealth and fame. They show that they're not really saved. They are the blind leading the blind. In contrast, how did Paul preach? He wrote in 2 Corinthians 4-5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That defines His whole ministry. We preach Christ, not ourselves. We didn't come to make ourselves famous. We're just your servants for Christ's sake. The litmus test of faithful spiritual leadership versus unfaithful spiritual leadership is this. Does the man lead toward himself or towards Christ? Does he preach himself or does he preach Christ? Paul says in verse 6 that they didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or for others. Truth be told, no one in Thessalonica, whether in the church or outside of it, could claim Paul and his friends were glory thieves, stealing glory from Christ, or hungry to be famous. Nobody could make that charge. But that's not to say that Paul, Savannah, and Timothy didn't have the right to receive honor from the church. He says we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We could have done that. We had the right to do that, to receive honor from you. 
What is an apostle? Well, the word apostle, apostolos, the Greek word, is used in various ways in the New Testament. Its most basic meaning is a messenger who is sent in the authority of another. A messenger who is sent in the authority of another. For example, a king might send messengers throughout his kingdom to make declarations on his behalf. A messenger who is sent in the authority of another. Now it's critical to understand that such a messenger would be sent with authority to make the declarations in the king's name. But the messenger's authority wouldn't come from himself. Rather, his authority would come from the one who sent him, the king. We find the word apostolos used in this very way in John thirteen sixteen, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger, apostolos, greater than the one who sent him. A messenger is only a servant of the one who has authority over him. He has no authority in himself. Yet he's a man commissioned to speak on behalf of the one he serves, and in that he has the authority, he carries the authority of his master. Now you can understand why this word was the perfect word to describe men who were sent to preach the gospel and established the church. Apostles were messengers of Christ the King who declared the good news of the kingdom of Christ. They had authority, but their authority derived from the one they served, Christ their King. Now, in the strictest sense, apostles were only those men who witnessed Christ's resurrection. We won't go to this passage, but just write down Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Give a qualification for apostleship. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, as they're selecting Matthias to replace Judas. What's the qualification? It's one who had witnessed Christ's resurrection and who had been appointed by Christ. Appointed by God. So only those who witnessed Christ's resurrection and who had been chosen by God to preach the gospel, commissioned by God, in the strictest sense, were the apostles. These included Jesus' eleven faithful disciples, Matthias, who replaced Judas, and then Paul. But occasionally, the New Testament uses this word that was in secular Greek, apostolos, Occasionally, they use the word apostolos more broadly outside of that strictest sense, in a less formal sense, to refer to those commissioned to preach the gospel even if they hadn't personally witnessed Christ's resurrection. And that's the sense that Paul uses the word in verse 6. He refers to himself, Savannah and Timothy, as apostles. Now, Paul was an apostle with a capital A. But Silvanus and Timothy were also commissioned by God through Paul to preach the gospel as the church was first established. 
Now, when Paul says that they could have made demands as apostles of Christ, what then does he mean? Well, the word demands literally means weight or burden. Weight or burden. Figuratively, it came to mean the weight of authority an official possessed. The weight of an authority that an official possessed. Kings possessed authority by virtue of their position and power and could make demands on their subjects. Messengers of the king possessed authority because of the one who sent them. What Paul is saying is that as apostles of Christ, they had a weight of authority that was their right to exercise within the church. They could have made certain demands upon the church because they were Christ's messengers. For example, it would have been within their rights to receive financial support from the church in Thessalonica as apostles because they ministered to that church. But they didn't exercise the full weight of that authority while ministering there because they didn't want anyone to distrust their motives for preaching the gospel. As was often the case, Paul instead chose to support himself through the labor of his own hands so that no one could claim he was taking advantage of him. In fact, when Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, he was in Corinth, working according to Acts 18.3 as a tent maker as he preached the Word of God in Corinth and shepherded the new church there. But it's interesting what happened in Corinth. Sometime later, after Paul had left Corinth to continue his missionary journeys, he was forced to defend his apostolic authority and his right to receive support, even though he hadn't availed himself of that right in the Corinthian church. He was put on the defensive. And his defense is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want you to turn to that passage briefly because it shows how Paul thought about his rights in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, a lengthy passage, notice how he defends his right to receive support from them, but also the reason why he didn't exercise that right. This is the lengthiest defense that he gives of this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not even we more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of the ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this, Of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own reward, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Though Paul could have made demands upon them as an apostle of Christ and a minister of the gospel, he chose not to for the sake of the gospel. Now, as we turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's exactly Paul's point here in verse 6. Though he could have exercised his authority over the church in Thessalonica, he deliberately chose not to so that no one could question the sincerity of his ministry his ambitions were not for his own glory but solely for the glory of god so these three apostles demonstrated the sincerity of their ministry through speech through their motives and through their ambition they proved they were faithful spiritual leaders by their sincerity Now, to the fourth characteristic of faithful spiritual leaders. And the last one we'll study today. Faithful spiritual leaders are distinguished by their sacrificial love. Faithful spiritual leaders are distinguished by their sacrificial love. This point isn't hard to see in verses 7 and 8, where Paul expresses his love for the Thessalonian church with, um, with an illustration. Beginning in verse 7, he writes, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That word but signals a strong contrast. Paul denies that their ministry was in any way insincere and overbearing. Instead, he says, we were gentle among you. The word translated gentle is used in the New Testament only here and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. In that verse, it's translated kind. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Now, regardless of whether it's translated gentle or kind, it describes a person with a mild temperament and who isn't given to harshness and anger. A person who is compassionate and good rather than a person who is mean-spirited and self-centered. 
A person who is more willing to serve than to make demands. The apostles could have come to Thessalonica and insist on their rights and make demands, but that's not how they came at all. Rather, they came much like he says in verse 7, a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, a nursing mother is the perfect picture of gentleness. She doesn't make demands upon her infant or treat her newborn harshly. Rather, with tender-hearted care, she attends to every need of her beloved baby. A nursing mother is eager to share not only her milk, but her very life with her child. And in the same way, the apostles became like spiritual mothers to the new believers in Thessalonica. He writes in verse 8, "...being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but our own selves." because you had become very dear to us. In this verse, Paul expresses the apostles' deep love for the saints in the church, just as a mother would express her deep love for her child. He says the apostles were affectionately desirous of the believers in Thessalonica. That phrase, affectionately desirous, translates one word in the Greek that is used only here in the New Testament, and it is rare even in Greek literature, found only four times in all le- Greek literature of ancient days. But one of the places this word has been found was on a grave where the inscription describes a parent's longing for a dead baby. That's what the word means. To long for a loved one and to yearn to be close to them once again. When Paul wrote this, he was separated from the church by hundreds of miles and hadn't seen them in many months. But his love for them was as strong as ever. And it was love that motivated the apostles to minister to them in the first place. Love was the motivation. When you love someone deeply, you're willing to give them the best that you have to offer. And Paul says that he and his companions were ready to do that. Ready is a word that means eager, joyful, resolved. The apostles' hearts were set to sacrifice for the church not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Their sacrifice was no mere duty, but delight. And what were they willing to give? What was the best that they had to offer? Well, first and foremost, Paul says, the Gospel of God. That's what they were willing to share. When the apostles came to Thessalonica, they were eager to share the Gospel of God, which is the only message with the power to save. Because they loved this church, they wanted to share the Gospel with them. They were excited to preach the good news that all sinners who trust in Christ will be forgiven and reconciled with God. Furthermore, they were eager to share their very own selves. Selves translates the word suke. That's a word that is sometimes translated soul. The apostles were ready to share their whole souls with these saints. Their affections, their time, their energy. Whatever they had, their lives. Whatever it took to help the church mature spiritually, 
they were ready to give. As a faithful servant of Christ, this is how Paul ministered to all the churches. He would sacrifice anything for the Gospel to be proclaimed and the churches to be strengthened. To the elders of Ephesus, he said in Acts 20.24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the Gospel of the grace of God. To the church in Corinth, he wrote 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. To the church in Philippi, he wrote in Philippians 2.17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul modeled for the churches the sacrificial love, my life for yours, that he learned from his Savior, Jesus Christ. Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus laid down His life for us on the cross, though He didn't deserve to be punished for sin. He took our sin upon Him and was crucified. He did it for love. And in love, we ought to lay down our lives and sacrifice for the saints of the church. Without love, no one would make such a sacrifice, but the apostles love this church very much. He writes, you have become very dear to us. It's almost like he didn't even need to write that. It's like he's repeating himself now, just for emphasis. When you love someone, you gush. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's gushing over the Thessalonians. You had become very dear to us. The word dear comes from the root word agape and could be translated beloved. You had become very beloved to us. This is what faithful spiritual leadership looks like. It's marked by Christ-like Sacrificial love. The ministry is motivated by love. Love for Christ. Christ's love compels us. And love for people and fulfillment of the second great commandment. To love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've seen now four characteristics that distinguish faithful spiritual leaders. Courage. Provenness. Sincerity. And sacrificial love. Next week, we plan to finish this passage with the remaining characteristics of spiritual leaders. But for now, let's pray that we would be filled with the love of Christ so that we would serve the church sincerely and sacrificially, eager to give others the best we have to offer. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, thank You for this reminder from our seems like a friend, Paul, that we are to lay down our lives for the spread of the Gospel. Father, would You help us all to be faithful in this task. To love one another, 
to love you, and to be faithful in the Great Commission to share the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.